0: Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travelers who love good food. I'm your host Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who has toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make traveling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hey there, thanks for joining me for this episode of Extra Virgin, and please excuse my voice. I'm a little husky today for some reason, I'm not sure why. Anyway, how's your art and history knowledge? Honestly, mine is pretty woeful. I have huge gaps in my knowledge, probably from not paying attention at school, which is why I always try to take a guided tour when I go to museums or galleries, or sometimes to historical sites when I travel. For me, it tends to stick so much better when someone's telling me about it when I'm standing in front of it rather than just reading about it in a book, especially in places like Italy where I happen to be going next week and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Coincidentally, my guest today, Kathleen Olive, is someone who does know a lot about art and history and Italy. She's one of the directors of Limelight Arts Travel and she leads tours to Italy, Spain, the US and Japan. She's a literary and cultural historian with a PhD in Italian Studies, has worked as a lecturer at Sydney Uni and at UTS teaching Italian language, literature and history. And she's also a lecturer for the Australian Decorative Fine Arts Society. Kathleen, you sound very busy, so thank you for making the time to join me today on Extra Virgin. Thanks very much, Natasha. As I said, I'm off to Italy next week, so I'm particularly excited to chat to you. And selfishly, I'm going to focus on Italy today with you. I hope that's okay. Absolutely. I can't think of anything I like talking about more. (laughs) Well, I don't know anybody who doesn't love Italy, including me. But let's talk about how your love of Italy was sparked.
1: Sure. So I don't come from a family with any Italian heritage at all. But when I was about 13, I thought I might like to become an interior decorator. And (laughs) my mother was trying to get me to learn a language, any language. So she suggested perhaps I should study Italian in case I wanted to go to Milan to study design. Mm. So in fact, I did take up studying Italian in high school and I left my dreams of becoming an interior decorator a little way along the road as (laughs) I went along, but I kept going with my love of Italian and I followed my study of the language and particularly Italian literature through my university degrees.
0: Hmm. And tell us about your studies and Italian studies, your further studies. What did you go on to study specifically?
1: Well, my first trip to Italy happened when I was an undergraduate. I was enticed into adding an honours year onto my degree by a very clever professor who suggested if I did that I might be able to get a scholarship to go to Italy for the yeah. first time. And so that was a very successful strategy. I did my honors degree in Italian literature as part of my bachelor of arts and i did i was very lucky i did get to spend time living in florence so i my area of specialization as an undergraduate and as a postgraduate as well involved looking at old documents particularly from the 15th century so i went and spent 6 months studying in florence for my honors degree and then when i came back to australia i took up my PhD. And I spent half of my PhD living again in studying some documents that were there. So I was very lucky to be able to do that to have that time studying away as part of my degrees. And it really set me on the path of developing not just my love for Italian, but also my love for Italy in context. So thinking about it in its historical and artistic and literary context and how all those things work together.
0: Mm. Well, I want to go back to your first trip to Italy because, like you, I, my first Italian experience was Florence. I lived there for a little while and worked as a nanny in my 20s. And I, in one of the previous episodes, I've actually read out a bit of my diary from that time. Very embarrassing, but about <laughs> my, my first impressions of, of Florence. What about you? What was that first trip like for you? I mean, you've, you'd been immersed in Italy and all things Italian, but seeing it for the first time and and living there, what was that like? It is, it's interesting, isn't it? Like you, I was, my
1: mother recently moved house and she foisted a lot of childhood memorabilia on me and that included a diary from my first trip to Italy as well. It's really interesting (laughs) to read and cringeworthy Mm -hmm. to read back over your impressions, but I think what sticks out for me is that, as you said, on the one hand, I'd been immersed in Italian culture. So by the time I got to Italy for the first time, I guess I'd been studying the language for seven years, but it was quite, what I knew about Italy was quite disconnect in some ways from reality. And I remember being almost, well, quite literally struck dumb for the first week. I was too embarrassed to really talk to anyone or engage with people. I was a little bit nervous, I think, to be away for the first time. And I do think I I did have an experience that is often discussed. It's called Stendhal's syndrome. And it's an actual psycho, probably psychosomatic in my case, condition, psychological condition that sees people, particularly travelers to Italy, just so overwhelmed by the history and significance and beauty of what they see there that they, you know, they suffer palpitations and get the shakes and a little bit sweaty and unable to really focus on what's going on around them. And the Florence Hospital actually treats uh, over (gasps) a 1,000 people a year, I think it is, uh, who who suffer from this syndrome. Yeah, so I I think I did experience that. I remember... (gasps) That is was extraordinary.
0: I've never heard of such a thing. Wow. It's Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a documented thing. I'm, I'm honestly not making it up. But <laughs> yeah, I certainly had moments myself where it felt like time was folding together and the past seemed very, very close in ways that for me in Australia, it hadn't yet. I hadn't really travelled very much in Australia either. So I hadn't got that enormous sense of antiquity that you get when you travel in Australia, particularly on country. So I think it was my first real experience of that. It really stands out for that reason.
0: That's extraordinary. And Kathleen, what exactly is a cultural historian? What what do you do? So cultural historian, I guess they look
1: at, at, at societies in context. So look at what human beings have done when they've grouped together in societies and really particular specific places and take a bit of a long view of what's happened with those people in that place. So you might look, for example, at Italy overall, or you might concentrate as I've done on a smaller place within Italy. So almost all of my research has taken me back again and again to the people of Florence. And you look at those people, I guess, in context, in the history that they created for themselves quite consciously, the stories that they've told about themselves over the generations and what kind of patterns might emerge from the way in which they've created those stories about themselves.
0: Is is the story of Florence and the Fiorentini a well-documented, I mean, is it easy for you to access all of the information that you need?
1: Yeah, it's a great great question. Florence is probably the easiest place to do that in all of Italy because thanks to various different reasons, they've got the, the biggest collection of historic documents in their state archive of anywhere in Italy. So it's not necessarily that Florentines wrote more about themselves than other people did throughout Italy, although some people have Suggested they that they did, but one way or another, they just have more of those documents. And you know, we're talking about documents that go all the way back to the eleventh century, for example. So, they kept everything. Florentines were real pack rats, and they, from I think it was fourteen twenty seven, they had an annual census that they took over the population, and they did that for about four hundred years. And those most of those records have survived, so you can, you know, you can track one person through their taxpaying adulthood, but. You you can track their family and it's, yeah, it's extraordinary the amount of documentation that survives there. So for people working on on Florence, yeah, it's actually quite easy to find the types of information that we need. We're really lucky.
0: And I'm sure this is probably a, a romanticised idea of, of what it's like, but are the places where these documents stored, you know, gorgeous Renaissance or medieval, the, are they, you know, modern day office buildings?
1: It's a bit of both, actually. The When I went as a as an honours student, I got the romantic experience on my first time studying there. I studied in a very ancient and beautiful library that was part of the Medici Family Palace. And it's, you know, it looks like something out of Harry Potter. It's just amazing. But then for most of my research and for most of us, I think working on Florence, working in the state archives, that's a really modern building. Mm. It was built after the catastrophic flood of nineteen sixty. It was built a little way back from the river because the old archive had been flooded by the Arno River during the 1966 flood. So it's very, very modern kind of brutalist office block and you work upstairs away from the floodwaters and it's it's not particularly romantic at all. You fight with the lockers, you fight with the coffee machine to try and get your little espresso on your breaks, but but it's certainly a very easy and comfortable place to work. But some certainly some of the archives are still, very very romantic it's exactly what you hope it's going to look like when
0: you go over there and start working. And Kathleen have you got a particular era or tighter subject focus that's your particular passion?
1: I do yeah so I concentrate quite specifically on the 15th century in Florence and you know like true academic areas of specialization it gets even narrower than that so what I like to look at are forms of writing that were made by people who were not part of the highly educated elite. So I particularly look at everyday workers and craftsmen and artists and artisans and what they wrote about themselves and about their city. So they were literate but they weren't, mm. you know, highfalutin writers and that's particularly what I like to look at.
0: And why are their writings saved in the archives? Well, I mean, this. I think it goes back to that thing
1: of maybe the Florentines are pack rats. Maybe they have a real value for writing and literature, and they do seem to develop that early on. So, as as people might know, the Italian language as. People Speak It today was really formed out of the kind of writing that happened in Florence in the 14th century. And so I think maybe the Florentines have always seen themselves as the preserver of the one true correct Italian language and held on to their writing and really valued what they produced in literature as a result. So I think that's probably part of it. But some of it I think really is just fate and and those documents have been preserved for administrative reasons and bureaucratic reasons and things that are really quite boring to consider, but which did result in so much of this information being preserved.
0: Mm. And also, as well as your lecturing, you lead small tool groups in Italy. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, well, when I was teaching, so for a while, I taught Italian history and language and literature at the University of Sydney. And while I was teaching there, I was asked to take a group of undergraduate students to Siena and Florence for three weeks. And of course, I did not say no, that seemed like too good an opportunity to turn down. And so for those students, it was a study abroad course. They were studying for their degree back in Australia, but they were able to do that while we were traveling around Tuscany together. So that was pretty extraordinary. And I just I loved it so much that then I was asked if I would take the occasional tour for non-students as well. So just for free and interested adult travellers. And I started doing that in 2008. And for the since 2008, in fact, that's been one of the main things that I do with my year. So I, I have been taking five or six groups every year away, mostly to Italy, also to some other places and increasingly to Japan as well, but particularly to Italy, because obviously that's where my expertise is and it's where my languages are as well. So yeah, that's been been one of the mainstays of my life now for quite some time.
0: Mm. So talk us through a typical itinerary. What time of year do you go to start with?
1: We send groups all through the year, but we particularly like to send groups in the off season or the shoulder season. So not so much in the high season. We don't really send any groups in European summer or Northern Hemisphere summer except for performing arts groups because you do get some great music festivals, Mm. classical music festivals then. But otherwise we tend to stay away from the high season mostly to avoid obviously the greater numbers of visitors that you get at sites in that time. Also helps avoid some of the extremes of warmer temperatures as well. And we also do it for reasons of sustainability and responsible tourism as well. So we do take groups to, you know, we're, we're talking about Italy today, so we certainly take groups to places like Venice, but we all know what Venice's reputation is for over-tourism, I think. So we find that by going on the edges of the season or in some cases actually in the off-season, so in Northern Hemisphere winter, we find that we can really spread the love, so to speak, and feel a little more responsible in terms of the type of tourism that we're encouraging. Mm,
0: it's a very different place, isn't it, in, in off-season. I my last trip to italy in fact was to sicily and a, f- a couple of other places in northern italy in winter so it was it was in november and C- sicily in particular yeah. we, we were going around the historical sites practically the only tourists there
1: It's definitely a benefit that people don't talk about. It really does help to keep prices down. You know, accommodation, as long as you avoid peak times like Christmas and New Year and in in Italy, Epiphany is still quite a big deal on the 6th of January as well. And if you stay away from those dates, it has a huge impact on how much you pay to travel, which I think people don't talk about as much. And obviously a lot of us, we're quite restricted as to when we can travel and when we can take the time off work to go away. But I think if you can go in the off-season, I agree with you. I think there's a huge amount to recommend it. And, yeah, November's a November's actually a great time. Late October, early November, before the rains that tend to come at the end of November and beginning of December. Yeah, I think it's especially Sicily because it can be so crowded in the mm. season and then to wander a, around a Greek temple and have no one else there, yeah. it's such a special experience.
0: It is really, really special. We also stopped in Florence and we stayed in and we got this deal on the most beautiful hotel that we could never have afforded to stay in and normally it was just a special because it was so quiet you know absolutely beautiful so yeah Mm -hmm. I do also highly recommend going to Italy in winter and Venice in winter is another thing altogether I mean it's
1: it's it's magical in some ways, isn't it? I mean, all, all the with all the color kind of drained out of things with the lower light that you get in winter, mm. Venice to me just looks like something out of a fairy tale in winter. It can be really cold, but yeah. you know, you you prepare for that obviously, mm. but it's yeah, it's a special thing. And I think the other thing for me that's a real benefit about traveling in the off season and maybe you experienced this in Sicily is that the people that you meet they're a little less tired yes. they're a little less overworked they have more time to speak to you and to you know make recommendations for your dinner in the restaurant or suggest that you go somewhere and see something special and extra and i just find that people are a little more expansive when they're not harassed by large <laughs> numbers of tourists so i think there's yeah there's a lot of benefits to going in the off
0: season so where in italy do your tour groups go
1: So we send groups of the length and breadth of the Italian peninsula. We have groups that go to the places that you would expect people to travel to in Italy in order to get the, you know, the real length and breadth of Italian history and culture and art. So places like Rome and Florence and Venice, of course, we send groups there. Mm -hmm. But we also really love to devise itineraries that send people a little off the beaten track. So we've got one group next year that's going through the Dolomites, for example up into the the hills and the mountains and really enjoying the hybrid cultures that you get in Northern Italy along the borders with places like Slovenia and Austria and, and Bavaria, for example. And we also really love and find that our guests really love tours that go to a place that's close to your heart, so to Sicily. So Sicily is a really perennially popular destination for small group cultural tours in Italy, really a crossroads of the Mediterranean. Everyone has had a go at trying to rule Sicily Mm -hmm. and everyone has left their mark there and so it's the kind of place where we find that people really benefit from a little bit of additional insight from travelling with someone who's able to really clearly set out for them all of the history That's somewhere that we find people really value travelling with an expert because they're able to shed some light on that really complex and diverse history that
0: Sicily in particular has had. Yeah, I wish I'd had somebody actually (laughs) when we were there. I I, I didn't have any idea of the complexity and the layers. You know, I'd I'd known that there were many invaders in Sicily, but I I didn't realise, I guess, how much of it was still preserved there and... You know, you really need an expert to explain to you which eras things come from and, you know, how that all links together, I guess.
1: Absolutely. I think especially destinations that have a lot of archaeological sites for those of us who didn't study archaeology, we're not specialists, all start to look just like rocks in the ground unless someone can really explain to you what it is that you're looking at. And I think I would put even art in that category. You know, everywhere you travel in Italy, you see a Madonna and child. And unless someone (laughs) can tell you why this one's more important than that one or how this one might be different to that one, it can all start to look the same. And it's not that you don't have a a fabulous time but I guess it's just about the kind of depth of an experience that you have and what remains memorable about it afterwards it helps to do some of that sifting through your thoughts about what it is that you're seeing and what 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 it means what you're seeing Mm. all means it can help to do some of that sifting on the actual journey I think
0: Mm. well I know it's a lot to ask but do you have a favorite Italian destination well, I would I would actually
1: say I would put Sicily very high on that list because I do love Sicily and a very wise man once wrote that if you've been to Italy and not been to Sicily, then you haven't seen Italy at all. And I'd have to agree with him on that. But I suppose if I were going to pick the place that I want to return to again and again and again, for me, it would be central northern Italy. So I just love spending time in the region of Tuscany, in the region of of Umbria and also just to the north of those places around Bologna so it's the region of Emilia-Romagna and I just think that the density of particularly medieval and renaissance art and architecture there really resonates with me because obviously that's my personal passion and my, my research expertise but also I think those places are really set up for visitors you can either spend time in somewhere like Florence where you'll run into every other traveller in Italy or you can just drive. <laughs> Outside Florence for thirty minutes and be in a small village that has some amazing, world famous painting in it and and a fabulous meal as well. So for me, I. I would actually put Sicily as the place I always want to return to when I go to Italy, but after that I would say probably just that area of the centre north because it's so culturally rich and it's so easy to have a fabulous time.
0: Mm. Well, I asked this of another guest who actually does food tours of Sicily, but if you had just 10 days in the whole of Italy, you obviously are going to have to concentrate it on one particular region or, or you know a couple of close close by regions would it be that central area that you're talking about or somewhere else it would be
1: yeah i mean it's such a cruel question natasha it is. um oh, sorry.
0: It, it probably
1: <laughs> that's okay probably would be that central area but to be a bit contrary you know the other place that i choose And did just now in April choose to spend a full month was actually Venice so I would very happily spend 10 days in Venice I think most of us our impression of Venice is that it's just tourists and cruise ships and bad pizza. And I think if you stay in Venice for even just more than three nights, you start to get a sense of its rhythms as a real city that a small population still does live in and care for very deeply as they're, they're The place where they all make sense. And then there are some fabulous day trips that you can do really easily from Venice as well. So there are probably hundreds of islands in the lagoon and some of those have, you know, beautiful old monasteries or really quaint little fishing villages. And then you can hit the mainland really easily from Venice and go to all of the cities that are about, I guess, 45 minutes away from Venice by train. So places like Padua, Verona, you can get to Lake Garda really. Easily and have a little bit of, you know, how the other half lives villa side tourism on the lake. And it's just really easy to get a really broad experience with lots of different things like art and history and food and wine, of course, because Prosecco is made just to the north of Venice. So I think 10 days in Venice would be pretty fabulous as well.
0: Oh, it sounds pretty fabulous to me. Now, I believe that you're leading a tour to Tuscany next january which is not not that long away actually tell us about that what are you going to do with that
1: so that tour that's a lovely tour we're really focusing on that journey on italian art and architecture in the middle ages and renaissance which was a moment in tuscany that was really when a bit of a cultural boom happened and a lot of our ideas about what great Western art looks like were formed in Tuscany at that time. So I guess that's the theme that we're following through, but we get to do very nice things on that trip. So we get to spend three nights in Lucca, which is a small town in Tuscany, halfway between Florence and Pisa that still has its renaissance city walls entirely intact, it has a real reputation for great food and elegant design. They still make some beautiful clothes with local textiles. In Lucca, we also will spend time in Siena. So we've got four nights in Siena. Siena is a place that I think a lot of people visit in Italy just for the day, but the Sienese can be quite closed off, I think, to people. And it really it really is a benefit to spend a little bit of time there and get to know the locals. They have a really proud history in the 14th century that they love to share with people. And then we've got a full week in Florence where we get to overdose really on the great art collections of Florence, but also see how it's really modernising itself and becoming more and more contemporary with things like the Gucci Museum and the Ferragamo Museum, for example. So yeah, that's going to be a lovely tour. I'm really looking forward to that one.
0: Well, I'm just taking notes because I will be spending a very quick night in Florence on the way over to Rome from... Venice so I I didn't know I did not know there was a Gucci museum
1: in Florence but um. put it put it high on your list they also have a fabulous cafe I don't know if the cafe is still doing this but but when they used to serve your cappuccino they did the uh, the cocoa on top of your cappuccino in the shape of the Gucci interlocked cheese which was (laughs) a bit of a dream and yeah but they have great cutting-edge contemporary art exhibitions and they also Mm. do a lot of work with their archive so it's really worth stopping into the Gucci museum in Florence.
0: Oh, thank you for that tip. And tell me, who who comes on your tours?
1: So the members of our groups, they tend to be people from, I guess, their late 60s up. They tend to be people who are still working but enjoy taking a good amount of time off from work to go away and really immerse themselves in a particular destination. We find that they have a bit of a shared cultural repertoire, they're like-minded people in our groups. They tend to be all reading the same shortlisted novels and heading off to the same kinds of performances in their spare time. So I find that they really form quite quickly a community in the group. Our groups are no larger than 20 people. So they're big enough to hide in when you need to hide, (laughs) but small enough to make a good friend or two. And actually, that's one of the lovely things I find is that people are so like-minded that they form genuine friendships that go the distance after the tour is ended as well. And even I've even had some people hook up and form long-lasting oh. relationships from the tour. So I think it's a, a it's really a, people find themselves among people that they feel really at home with and that they share a lot of common interests with.
0: And I guess that romantic ambience doesn't hurt either. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. We all look good in Italian light. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. It's been fantastic chatting to you about one of my favourite places.
1: Thanks so much, Natasha. It was lovely chatting with you too and best wishes. Bon voyage for your upcoming trip. Thank you so much.
0: And listeners, I'll put up a link to Kathleen's tours on the Extra Virgin website. I'm also going to do some mini podcasts from Italy on the road, so keep a listen out for those in the weeks to come. As always, thank you for listening. Bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until we meet again, bon voyage and bon appétit.